0: The word to Luke chapter 2, first of all, and then we'll turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Luke chapter 2, at verse 21, I'd like to read here about Simeon and what he says about the Christ child as a light to the Gentiles. Luke 2, verse 21, so we are beyond um, Christmas, as we call it. The child has been born, but just eight days old. Luke 2, verse 21, God's holy word. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the holy spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the holy spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the lord's christ so he came by the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the christ excuse me the child jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We'll stop it there and go to look up that light to the Gentiles at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. And I think also shorten our scripture reading here to focus on these first six verses and read them slowly. And then our text this morning is Isaiah 49 at verse 6. Isaiah 49, verse 1. The God-breathed scriptures still. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob, back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles." that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's ask for God's blessing on his holy word. Father in heaven, we praise you for the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of Christ and for the New Testament that has revealed and interpreted that coming to us. And we pray that you'll bless your word as it's preached to us today, that you would give us eyes to see, that the light of Christ would dawn upon us, And that in Christ, who is the light, we would enjoy everlasting life. So help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congregation of Christ, we hear this morning that Christ is the light to the Gentiles. And boys and girls, Gentiles, that's a word we use because the Bible uses it, but it just, it means nations. The Gentiles are the nations. In the Old Testament, you have two groups of people. You have the Jews, and you have the Gentiles. You have the church, and you have the world. You have Israel, and then you have all the other nations. Now, when you read the prophets, they have lots of things to say about Israel, the Jews, the church. But the prophets of the Old Testament also had a lot to say about the nations. In fact, they often name the nations, don't they? And as God speaks of the nations and the prophets, he has two different things to say. On the one hand, he says he's going to bring judgment upon them. For their idolatry, for their pride, for their brutality, for what they've done to Israel, he will repay them. But on the other hand, he says he's going to save them. He's going to save them. Today we hear how he will save them. He will save them by giving his servant as a light to the Gentiles. The book of Isaiah is filled with these glorious references of the inclusion of the nations among the joys of Israel. Isaiah says early on that in the last days many peoples will come to the mountain of the covenant of the Lord. Isaiah says that God will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples, turning their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah says the glory of the covenant Lord is going to be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. Isaiah speaks of this messianic king of the line of David, and he says that he will stand as a banner for the people. They will rally to him. The servant of the Lord, he says, will bring justice to the nations. And in his law, the islands will put their hope. Well, over and over, Isaiah makes clear that God's intention is universalistic. He's going to gather a lot, not just from Israel or Israel and Judah, but from the nations into his kingdom. If that doesn't surprise us as 21st century Christians, it surely ought to have surprised Israel, Judah, The people of God who'd become, by Isaiah's time, so insular and narrow-minded as to think that that they were simply the the end-all and be-all of God's purpose. And had forgotten that they were the children of Abraham to whom God said that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But what an amazing thing it would be if they opened their eyes now in wonderment and thought that that the nations also have a share in this kingdom just like us, that, that our fiercest enemies... The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, that they will be part of the kingdom? What an amazing thing to think that, that our God, we're a little piddly nation, and, and our God, all the world will come to worship him? It a mind-blowing revelation for those who had become too narrow-minded. Today we look at one of these glorious revelations, Isaiah 49, verse 6. God will give his servant as a light To the Gentiles. Let's consider just two points this morning. First of all, that that God's servant is worthy of a worldwide task. He's worthy of a worldwide task. And then that God's servant is given for a complete salvation. God's servant is given for complete salvation. First of all, God's servant is worthy of a worldwide task. Let me read verse 6 again. Indeed, he, the Lord, says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you might recall that there's four servant songs, so called, in this book between chapter 40 and chapter 55. And this is the second of them, the first is chapter 42. And these servant songs, they speak about the servant or Israel the servant. And so scholars debate the question, you know, who's the servant? Is the servant the people of Israel? Is it a remnant of Israel? Is it the prophet who's speaking? Is it the Messiah to come? This is a common question. In fact, maybe you remember that that in the book of Acts, when Philip is sent by the angel to overtake the Ethiopian eunuch, and he comes up alongside that chariot. He hears him reading, this palace official from Ethiopia is reading the scroll of Isaiah at a different servant song, Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant. And, and Philip asks him, do you know what you're reading? He says, well, how can I, unless somebody explains it? And so he invites Philip into the chariot, and then he asks Philip, as he reads these words about the suffering servant, he says, of whom is he speaking? Of whom is this prophet Isaiah speaking, of himself or another man? And then we read in in the book of Acts, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. But so is our text this morning. It's about Jesus. Because when we read that he is, he's going to save Israel, then it can't be Israel who saves Israel. And when we read at the end that he is salvation, my salvation ends of the earth, he's not merely the means of preaching salvation, he is the salvation. Who can this be but Jesus? This is all about our Lord Jesus. Now, if that's the case, why does God say to his coming servant, the Lord Jesus, it's too small a thing, it's too little a thing for you just to save the church? I'm going to give you as a light to the world. Well, I... Submit to you that verse 6 is the answer to verse 4. The servant of God, verse 3, he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And the servant says in verse 4, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. It's a window into the soul of the Messiah, isn't it? Jesus Christ will come, and he will not be unbelieving. He will go on in verse 4 to say, Surely my just reward is with the Lord, and my work with my God. He clings to God. But when he says, I've labored in vain, my strength I've given for nothing, he expresses a sense of, or at least a temptation, towards a feeling of failure and uselessness. We know our Lord Jesus became one with us in the flesh that he was tempted as we are. We know that Satan would have spoken to Christ words saying, "You know, it's all hopeless. Just give it up. Hang it up. It's worthless this mission you're on." Remember that Jesus' earthly ministry was not crowned with these triumphant success outwardly, but he was despised and rejected by men. We know Jesus in Mark 9, when he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and his glory is revealed, he comes down the mountain to a people among whom the disciples cannot cast out the demon out of the boy's father. And you remember Jesus, he, when he hears that, what's going on, he says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Christ is not greeted and received as the glorious Messiah entrusted in, is he? He was tempted towards discouragement. But you know who else faced discouragement? The very people to whom Isaiah is writing. The nation of Israel and Judah. As he's writing these words. They were supposed to themselves have been a light to the nations. That's why God chose this nation. And yet they, by their idolatries, have defiled God's glory in the world. And the nations, they mock God's people, they attack God's people, they despise God's people. They don't stream into Jerusalem to worship Israel's God. But the coming servant of the Lord will have none of Old Testament Israel's blame. He will be a pure and a holy servant. He will not fall prey to sinful cynicism and giving up the assignment. But he will press on trusting that his work is in the hands of the Lord. And despite how the ministry of Christ would appear as something rather small or weak or despised, yet in God's way, in God's time, it will be glorious. It will be glorious. Not only would Christ restore a wayward and broken Israel, but he would save the world. Now, when the Lord says here, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore Israel, God is not saying that saving the tribes of Jacob and restoring Israel is a small thing. It's actually a huge thing, right? Because the people of God have, have, have fallen very, very low. Isaiah prophesied during days in which the church is divided, right? The church is broken apart. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're at odds with each other. And in fact, in Isaiah's day, they go to war against each other. They want to kill each other. And then during Isaiah's day, the northern tribes will be conquered and carried off captive by the Assyrian nation. And Assyria will scatter them. And then Isaiah foresees the day when the Babylonians will come and capture Judah and carry them away captive. And now to put all this back together, to bring these people home, to give them new hearts, to reconcile them to God, to cover their sin. This is not a small thing. This is an enormous thing. This is an enormous thing to save God's people and restore their glory in the Lord. But as big a task as that is, God says, for you, my servant, it's too small. It's too small. It's not nearly enough for you. Because of your glorious nature, because of your extraordinary calling, because of your astounding preparation, it is... It is too small a task for you. The servant says in verse 1, the Lord called me from the womb. The Lord's calling upon his life, we learn in the New Testament, is actually from eternity. Christ was foreordained before the creation of the world. And he says in verse 2, you've made my mouth like a sharp sword. Our Lord Jesus has the power by which to speak and to heal and to raise the dead and to convert hearts. And he says in verse 5, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be a servant. What a wonder that, that the eternal Son of God comes down from heaven to take up a human nature in the womb of a human woman. The young Mary. This is the glorious one, the Lord of glory. This is the eternal Son of God. So great a servant is he as he comes in obedience to his father. It's too small a thing to save Israel. He will save the world. He will restore an estranged world to her God and maker. And so Christ need not doubt the success of his work. And even if at times he will be tempted... By Satan, to to think his work will come to nothing. He has the sure word of the Lord that his work will be glorious. His strength will not be spent in vain. Even on the cross, when when Satan is mocking him and the world is mocking him, to think he is useless. He will believe the word of his Father. That he will do a glorious thing to save the elect of all nations. and Make one people for the Lord God. But now, brothers and sisters, if this is an encouragement to the Christ, the coming Christ, who else is this an encouragement to? Well, it's written as an encouragement for the people of the Christ. As Isaiah writes these words, any believing saints in the church would have been quite distressed to think that after all, We've done in all these centuries and trying to be faithful, those of us who've tried to be faithful, it all comes to nothing now. What a disaster we've become. How we've ruined the name of God in the world. But God is giving to his church hope here. He's saying to them, your purpose is not lost, but in my servant who is the true Israel, your purpose is restored. And you have a share in his wonderful success. These words are written for our encouragement this morning, brothers and sisters, for us. They're written for us. Aren't we tempted to discouragement in the labor of the church? Aren't preachers tempted to discouragement and think, all my labor was in vain? All the study of the word and the preaching of the word, what did it come to? We long to see conversions and revival and hungry souls that are hungry and thirsting for the word and you know even every member not a preacher the discouragement we face and pouring yourselves out as as servants of the lord and his church maybe you have prayed and labored for neighbors or for loved ones and yet despite your witness they haven't believed or maybe you've, you've poured yourself out in hospitality for people who've come into our building here and you've loved them and you've cared for them and then they, they just leave and you never see from them again and you wonder, are they in a church somewhere? Did they, did they receive anything of the Lord here? And yet, where does the Lord turn our eyes here? The hope of success is not rooted in us, but in God's servant. It's not that we are a great people. It's not that, that we have some powers within to do a work upon a people, but our eyes are set upon God's servant, whom we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one formed from the womb to be his servant. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of Mary. And when he was born, what happened? Well, we read that in Luke 2, right? He's brought to the temple to be devoted to the Lord, And there is Simeon who himself is a kind of prophet. He is given revelation by the Spirit. and He holds this child. And he says to the Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is your salvation, this child. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was one of the remnant who had hope in God's word, who believed what God had spoken. And he saw by the Spirit of Christ that this was the Christ child. And this child is to be as it was for Simeon, our glory, as we look upon him, not only in this Advent season, but but every day to say, God, this is your salvation, this is your light, our Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot fail in his task. You should remember that he's always the one who's building the church. He, he said to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus says in John 10, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The salvation of the world is Christ's great work. It was given him by the Father, and he was sent and he was foreordained, and he was commissioned, and he was baptized, and he was anointed with the Spirit to save the nations. And that means that the ministry of the church and our work on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ can no sooner fail than the Christ of God could no longer be glorious. The glory of the Messiah is at stake in the world. And so our comfort here this morning is that we share in the triumph of this Christ. John Calvin, in his commentary, puts it like this. He says, Isaiah proceeds still farther and shows that the labor of Christ and of the whole church will be glorious, not only before God, but likewise before men. Although at first it appears to be vain and useless, Yet the Lord will cause some fruit to spring from it, contrary to the expectations of men. And he goes on to say, already it was enough. Already it was enough that our labor should be approved by God. But when he adds that it will not be unprofitable, even in the eyes of men, this ought still more abundantly to comfort and to excite us. Hence it follows that we ought to have good hope of success, but we ought to leave it to the disposal of God Himself that the blessings He promises may be manifest at the proper time, to whatever extent, and in whatever manner He shall think proper. John Calvin has it right, I think. When you read the text, be excited. The work of the church will be glorious. Because the work of the Messiah that is the work of the church, founded upon him, proclaiming him, that work is glorious. And yet, leave all things to God to manifest his blessing at the proper time, to whatever extent, and in whatever manner God thinks proper. Now look with me at Acts chapter 13 if you would. Acts chapter 13 in the scriptures, where we see the apostle Paul having to do that very thing to be excited about the gospel, but to leave in the hands of the Lord whatever it's going to do. Acts 13, Paul's at Antioch at verse 44. Excuse me. Acts 13 at verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicted and blasphemed. And they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, you Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, and now he quotes our text, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And then if you read on, more believe, but also more more persecution comes. Paul and Barnabas are expelled, and yet the disciples are filled with joy. Well, there it is, right? Paul goes forward preaching the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and the Jews reject him. But then he proclaims this Messiah is also for the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are filled with joy. The ministry goes that way. Some believe and some don't. God is sovereign, but the ministry of Christ will be glorious. So what's the application? It's be encouraged, be strong, be faithful, keep presenting Christ to the world. Not everyone will believe But not everyone will reject him. God's spirit, the spirit of Christ, is at work. And so Paul could say to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Do not be ashamed. Paul would go on in, in Timothy there to say that Paul's not ashamed. And then Paul will point to the fact that many have deserted him, but Onesiphorus has often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when I arrived in Rome, he sought me out zealously and found me. You see, if we will not be excited about the glorious ministry of Christ, then we will be ashamed of it. If we will not believe the word that the ministry is glorious, then we will turn away and be embarrassed of it. We need to hear that, brothers and sisters, because we live in a celebrity culture where many people assume that the glory and success of the church is measured by how big and beautiful the building, how bright the lights, how sophisticated the sound system, how charismatic the preacher, and how vast the multitudes that fill the stadium But the Lord tells us that 15 disciples gathered in the Sudan, or Saudi Arabia, or Iran, or China, under persecution. Since the glorious servant of the Lord is with them, that's glorious. That's glorious. We ought not to be ashamed to identify with Christ and his cause. It will not fail. God's servant is glorious. He's worthy of a worldwide task. He has been sent by the Father, as the Fathers loved the world, to gather people out of all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages, and to reconcile them to God, to be his people, not for a time, but for eternity. We will see his glory. But secondly, this morning, God's servant is given for a complete salvation. God's servant is given for complete salvation. If this one's going to save the world, how will he do it? Well, the end of verse 6 says, I will, give, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So we've got two things here. We've got light and salvation. Let's look at that light first of all. Light in the Bible can mean joy and life. It's the opposite of misery and death. But light can also mean the way in which you receive that salvation, and that is by by the true knowledge of the gospel. And I think that's especially what Isaiah is emphasizing here. Boys and girls, we, we often don't think about the value of light Maybe this week you went in your bedroom, it was dark, and you turned on the light, or you went in the bathroom, it was dark, and you turn on the light, and we're, we're used to that. But it's an amazing thing that, that when we can't see, it's dark. We turn on the light, and now we can see. And God's the creator of light. He spoke at the beginning of time and created light and lighted up the world. But the light spoken here is, is not a physical light, but a spiritual light so that we can see spiritual realities. Like what? Well, like our sin, like the wrath of God on it, like the triune God who made us and to whom we are accountable, and like the wonder of the gospel that God has sent his beloved to rescue the world. Now, when God says that his servant will be a light to the Gentiles, what does that imply? It implies that the Gentiles live in darkness, in ignorance, in unbelief that they can't see. That the spiritual realities of the world are unknown to them. That they're lost in this darkness of sin. And the same is true, of course, today, doesn't it? Wherever, wherever we have the Gentiles, which is essentially the world, right? Whenever we're looking outside the church at the world, it doesn't matter how sophisticated they seem, how well-studied they are, how brilliant scientifically they've become. Apart from Christ, all is darkness. Darkness. E.J. Young wrote in his commentary decades ago, hence the need for vigorous missionary work. One religion is not as good as another. Christ alone is the light of the world. You believe that? But apart from Christ, all is darkness. We received a handwritten, hand addressed envelope, handwritten letter this week from somebody who said she was, I guess, a neighbor and writing The Neighborhood. But she took the time to write out longhand, almost three-quarters of a page, wanting to offer encouragement to The Neighborhood. And what it came down to was, go to the website jw.org, so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. There's someone who thinks they have the light they want to offer to others, but even the light they think they have is darkness, denying that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Our world is a dark place. The darkness takes in many forms, doesn't it? But though the darkness takes many forms, the light is of only one kind, the servant of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel he himself taught and preached, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom wherever he went. John Calvin again writes, he shows that this light which Christ shall bring will give salvation. Like John fourteen 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, because through the knowledge of the truth, we obtain life. Through the knowledge of the truth, we obtain life. Matthew Henry the Puritan wrote, Christ is given for a light to all those to whom he is given for salvation. It is in darkness that men perish. Christ enlightens men's eyes and so makes them holy and happy. The way salvation comes is through the spread of the light, the preaching and the teaching of the true doctrine of the Bible. We have to remember that as a church. It's easy, and many churches do today, get lost in a flurry of activity, of political causes and social causes, and many of those may even be great things to do as a Christian individually, but the mission of the church is the gospel mission, the preaching of the gospel. This is our task, to proclaim the light, to bring the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There is no other institution, no other organization to whom this task is assigned as it is assigned to the church to spread and diffuse the light. Ignorance is death. We need the truth, and we need the Spirit who enlightens hearts to receive that truth. And as we see that Christ is the light, that we may rejoice that, that there's no one. We too often do this, I think. We look at certain people and think they are just too ignorant or too hard-hearted or too lost to ever become a Christian. But just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the Old Testament church looking at the brutality and the idolatries of their pagan neighbor nations and hearing that this Messiah is going to bring them light, salvation. Even the former persecutor of the church could say For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of God is powerful. The light of God is the truth of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. But you know, one takeaway from this is the reality that we may never... Long to be a non-doctrinal church. Doctrine means teaching, and teaching is, if it's biblical teaching, it's just the, it's just the truth of God's word. How any church of Christ would want to be non-doctrinal is really incomprehensible. That's like say, we want to be a church without light. There's no salvation without knowing the truth. You can't believe in a Jesus you don't know. You can't turn from sin that you're unaware of. It is only by the teaching of truth that people are saved. And so we want to be rich in the truth. We want to be strong in the word. We want to hold tightly to what God has given. And if we have the light, then... If that light shines in our hearts, we have salvation. That's the other word that's brought up here, salvation. Notice that the Lord tells his prophet, not just that he's going to deliver salvation or bring salvation, but that he himself is salvation. Christ didn't come just to talk about salvation, but to secure it. That final servant song, Isaiah 53, will show how he secures salvation. He's the suffering servant who comes to bear our guilt. And so we know that the Christmas child, the son of God now taking on human nature, does not come in human nature simply to, to demonstrate to us how much God loves us, He doesn't come simply to show us an example of how to be faithful to God. But he comes above all to offer his life as a substitutionary death in our place. That he might expiate or remove the guilt. That he might propitiate or appease the wrath of God and make God favorable towards us. And that by those he might reconcile us to God. That we who are enemies are now friends of God. All by the blood spilled at the cross. And what does God say about this? He says it's too small a task that you should do that just for the Jews. But that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That your blood spilled on the cross will bring... Salvation to people the world over. And God says, I'm proud to own that, as my salvation. It's God's work from beginning to end, but it's also God's delight from beginning to end. It's God's great pleasure from beginning to end. It's it's the thing in which God glories. God stands up and says over his beloved Son, In this I rejoice, this is my salvation. That you should offer your life a substitute for my wayward, hard-hearted, wretched people. And in doing that, should restore them to my favor to live with me forever. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we come to taste of God's salvation. We meet our host at the Lord's table, who is the great servant of the Lord. And it was too small a task for him to save only the Jews, but he has come to save Gentiles like us and to bring us into the family of God and to make us the Lord's forever. Taste of the goodness of his salvation this morning and give praise to the glorious servant of God and to the Father who sent him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word, your light. How ignorant, how lost, in what overwhelming darkness we would be slaves if you had not visited us with the light of Christ. How we praise you for his light. and we praise you for he who is our life. And now, Lord, we pray that you bless us as your word is confirmed to us in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.